Hey there, welcome to The Tent. I'm your host, Scott Fellman, and it's time for another foray into the world of aquariums from a slightly different perspective. Have you ever thought about how water reaches all the wild aquatic ecosystems of the world? I mean, it's got to get there some way, right? So how does it reach the ponds, the lakes, the streams, and the rivers, and the forest floors of the world? Ever think about that? Well, some simply falls into the body of water directly from the sky, and that's that. Some is a result of other overflowing streams and rivers, like, you know, those flooded agapo forests we talk about. Inputs of precipitation falling over areas of an aquatic habitat are transferred to the habitat via a number of different pathways. It's surprisingly complicated, actually. There's like a whole field of science devoted to studying this process. It's called hydrology, and it's incredibly interesting. Whereas fish geeks were probably already acquainted with this field of study, at least tangentially. In other words, we've probably done things in that area and, and not even known it. So water comes from a variety of sources, reaching a myriad of ecological niches. However, not all of the water has such an easy journey on its way to our favorite aquatic habitat. Even in the case of rainwater, some of it simply lands on trees in the surrounding area and evaporates. This is a process scientists call interception, and it accounts for the fact that not all water makes it to the ground. Water that does reach the ground enters the soil through a process called infiltration slowly percolating down to soil areas known as the saturation zone. And as you'd imagine, this is where the fun really begins, to a soil geologist at least. The soil properties, and this is important, control the infiltration capacity. These include things like soil permeability, the presence of vegetation and plant roots, and how much water is already in the soil. Through what is known as groundwater flow, ultimately the water finds its way into our favorite aquatic habitats. It's important to note that the soil texture, i.e. the relative proportion of sand, silt, and clay particles within the mix, affects infiltration rates. Now, sandy soils like the podzols, common to forested areas of South America that we're talked about so much, have a higher permeability than some clay-based soils. In some really arid areas, a crust can form on the soil surface, actually decreasing the permeability. And of course, the thickness of the soil directly affects how much water the soil can actually absorb. And in many cases, the substrate composition uh, of the, uh, and its relationship with the water has a direct impact on the life forms which inhabit these aquatic ecosystems. In the case of some habitats like vernal pools, which are filled with water seasonally, the substrate is of critical importance to the aquatic life forms which reside there. Let's talk killies for just a second, digressing a bit. One study of the very much loved African genus Nothobranchius, the annual killies that everybody seems to love so much, indicated that the soils are the primary drivers of habitat suitability for these fish, and that the eggs can only survive the embryonic period and develop in a specific soil type containing alkaline clay minerals known as smectites, which create the proper soil conditions for this in desiccated pool substrates. So in other words, these, the presence of these materials actually protects and I guess you'd say sort of nurtures the eggs during the dry period when the pools dry up, um, which protects them until the next rainy season. So the resulting mud-rich substrate in these pools has a low degree of permeability, which enables water to remain in a given vernal pool even after the surrounding water table may have receded. And of course, a lot of decaying materials like plant part uh, plant parts and leaf litter are present in the water, which would impact the pH and other um, characteristics of this aquatic habitat. Now, interestingly, it's known by ecologists that the water in these pools may stay alkaline despite the presence of all this stuff because of the buffering capacity of the alkaline clay present in the sediments. Makes sense, right? And to literally cap it off, 
If this impermeable layer were not present, the vernal pools would desiccate too rapidly to permit the, the critical early phases of the embryonic development of the nothobranchia sacs to occur. Yet, you know, when you think about it, it makes perfect sense, and these fishes are tied intimately to their aquatic environment. The really fascinating concept of what's called embryonic diapause, which is a form of prolonged yet reversible developmental arrest, is pretty well known to scientists and to lovers of annual killifishes. The occurrence and length of time of diapause varies from species to species, yet it's considered by scientists to be an evolutionary adaptation and an ecological trait in various populations of Nothobranchius tied, you guessed it, directly into the characteristics of the ephemeral habitats in which these fishes reside. So yeah, the relationship between water and soil is actually a remarkably complex one with biological implications that we haven't even thought about very much as hobbyists. Studying how water gets to these aquatic habitats, how it creates them, is a critical key to understanding the needs, behaviors, and adaptations of our fishes. Now, during that journey into the, you know, aquatic habitats, materials like humic substances, minerals, etc., will be absorbed into the water from the surrounding soil. Yeah, that's the interesting part. The surrounding geography and geology have as much to do with the ultimate water characteristics as anything else. Like so many things in nature, everything is somehow interrelated. Once again, bringing it all the way back to a more practical aquarium point of view, I can't help but wonder if working with different types of substrate materials like soils, sands, etc. in our makeup water containers even could yield some similar effects to those we see when we steep leaves and botanicals in the water. Could the right combination of soils in both our makeup water containers and even in our aquariums create more realistic conditions for our fishes and aquatic plants? This one can only wonder, but I think that we're onto something here. It makes a ton of sense. My experiments have yielded some really interesting results. We're seeing more and more specialized aquatic soils for plants, which are designed to stimulate some of the natural habitats in which they are found, or at least characteristics of the natural habitats. And fishes are often found in these habitats too, right? So why should plants have all the fun? Wouldn't it make sense to utilize some of these specialty substrates or, or create substrates comprised of some of these components and use them in tanks which feature fishes and not just plants or even gulp devoid of plants? What potential benefits for our fishes could be gained by using one of these more technical aquatic plant substrates in our fish-centric botanical-style blackwater aquariums or even developing new ones? Well, that's what we took to, to task. We're sure as hell going to try to find out, I'll tell you that much. The nature base line, that's what we're calling it right now, of specialized premium substrates is going to debut real soon. We've been testing the hell out of it and we're really excited to release it to you. And we think it just might change the way we think about substrates in the hobby. Like, we here are busy designing aquatic displays around the substrate, its form and its function. Not just around like a piece of wood or, or an idea. We're actually designing around the substrate, working backwards. So stay tuned for way more on this later in the summer. And one more thing to some of you erstwhile copycats of the Tannin brand, of which there have been a few emerging from time to time, and I hear buzz about these people. Um, you know, I've got some stuff to say. And there's a great quote I'm going to quote you from the, the unbelievably talented designer Coco Chanel back in the this is from like the 1930s 1940s she said in order to be irreplaceable one must always be different and it's true like I've alluded to previously it's going to get real weird real soon now we're doing things that are going to be a little different and too many vendors are getting into the botanical game as far as I'm concerned slinging botanicals and seed pods and just sort of commoditizing the whole thing and that to me is always a sure sign that it's time for Tannen to push beyond and I'm glad we're going in this direction Let's just say we're going to go way beyond. 
in ways we're pretty confident that no one else in this hobby or industry has even thought of, let alone wanted to think of for a while. So you're gonna see some strange products, some crazy ideas, some interesting executions coming out in the months to come. And I'm just gonna kind of leave it at that for now, but I think it's real exciting. Okay, my commercial plug and a little micro rant and warning to the world aside, let's dive back into this topic and finish it up for you. So with all this water finding its way into the streams, rivers, and other areas from so many different sources, there's probably so much we can learn from finding out more about the surrounding areas themselves and how water ultimately makes it into the bodies of water that we're so obsessed with. This is an area of study in the hobby that's really wide open for advancement, in my opinion. The possibilities are endless here. In a blackwater environment, for example, the color is a visual indicator of an influx of dissolved materials that contribute to the richness of the environment. Indeed, a blackwater environment is typically described by ecologists as an aquatic system in which vegetation decays, creating tannins that leach into the water, making a transparent acetic water that's darkly stained, resembling tea, as you, as you will. Despite the appearance, as a general rule, blackwater rivers are lower in nutrients than clearwater rivers. They have a very low concentrations of major ions like sodium, magnesium, potassium, calcium, and lower conductivity, and typically low levels of dissolved solids. Think about what that means for just a second and about the many factors that influence the water characteristics of these really unique systems. Wouldn't it be interesting when contemplating more natural biotope or biotype aquariums to study and take into consideration the surrounding geology and physical characteristics of the habitat? I think it would. And as we know now, the influence of factors like soil and the presence of terrestrial materials like seed pods, leaves, and branches plays a huge role in the chemical composition and the appearance of the water. It's really no different in the aquarium, right? Tannins from wood and botanical materials will leach into the water, providing that characteristic tint that we've become so accustomed to in our little niche. Studying the characteristics of the Agapo and the Varzea forests of Amazonia is just a start. These are the textbook examples of geologic influence on the aquatic environment, something that we can really run with on our biotopic interpretations of this habitat and others. We also you know, have to think about the potential here. Yeah, I have this irresistible curiosity about the potential of botanical-influenced substrates to foster denitrification. With this diverse assemblage of microorganisms and a continuous food source of decomposing botanicals sort of in situ, I can't help but think that such a living substrate creates a surprisingly diverse and utilitarian biological support system for our aquariums. I think that the idea of an enriched substrate will become an integral part of the overall ecosystems that we create. Considering the substrate as both an aesthetic and functional component, even in a non-planted aquarium, opens up a whole new area of aquarium exploration. And its impact on water is already an obsession to many of us, right? I envision that the future of mainstream of aquarium practice may include creating such a substrate as simply part of what we do. Adding a mix of botanical materials, live bacterial and small organism cultures, and even some detritus from healthy aquatic systems that just may become how we establish an aquarium in the future. It's not some amazing revolution. It's simply an evolution of practices that we've been playing with peripherally for decades in the hobby. It involves mental shifts, looking at things differently, appreciating new aesthetics, indeed wiping out our preconceptions of aesthetics altogether, and understanding what nature's really like. It's all about what happens when water, soil, weather, and fishes interact. Stay excited, stay fascinated, stay studious, stay brave, stay creative, stay diligent, and always stay wet. Until next time, this is Scott from Tin and Aquatics. Thanks so much for spending part of your day with me, and I look forward to seeing you on the next installment of The Tin.